Well, good morning. Um, I'm not exactly sure what happened in my absence, but it looks like this side of the church did something really wrong. Um, I know the church has been super divided over politics, so I was trying to figure out, is this the Democratic section, the Republican section? I'm not exactly sure how this is working, but uh, anyway, it's great to, great to be back. Um, true story, how this all really panned out. Um, last week I was talking to Joey on the phone. Um, do you want me to stand still? Is, am I? All right. I didn't know there was a camera there. So I was talking to Joey last week and he basically said, um, well, I called him for other reasons. I'm going to try and stay right here. Um, and he, you know, we were talking about Mozzie doing her thing today and which I was just, I've been so excited about. Um, what God is doing in her life, um, and so, you know, I was I was letting him know because we haven't really been here. We've been intentionally trying to, you know, kind of give you guys space to just kind of be Missio Day Church without us kind of lurking in the background. So, um, so when when uh, Joey told us that uh, there was no preacher for today, I thought, well, uh, it'd be kind of fun to actually do like a double double header with Maz, you know, have Mozzie come up and speak and. Um, so he didn't ask me to preach, but there was somewhat of a pregnant pause when I said I'll be there anyway. Uh, so I offered, I offered to kind of to kind of speak, and I guess the elders agreed. So anyway, it's good to be back. Um, a lot has changed. Uh, I'm sure a lot has changed for you guys. A lot has certainly changed for us. Um, I realized that they didn't necessarily publicize the fact that I was going to speaking be speaking here today. I think. Maybe some people on the leadership team knew or, or what have you. So um, it, it may have been kind of surprising or shocking or I don't know what emotions you might feel uh, as you walk through the door and see me standing up here or see me in, see me in the room. Uh, it certainly has been weird for us. Um, we fit, we've kind of felt like, um, I don't know, like a, a family without a home, you know. Um, we've, we've been kind of just with the pandemic not going to church uh, which has actually been really wonderful um, because I think every weekend for the past 20 years of my life, um, I've actually had to work. Um, so it's been kind of nice to actually uh, <laughs> sleep on Sunday, uh, do nothing, um, do, you know, kind of do whatever I wanted to do, <laughs> which has been kind of nice. But now that the, you know, the whole mask mandate is lifted and people are allowed to come back to church, uh, we've been kind of bouncing, bouncing around, primarily following the kids to different places that they're interested in. Um, so it's 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 been good to actually begin the process of kind of finding our place uh, back within people, you know, communities of faith. So that's been super exciting. Um, in terms of like what's what's going on with us, um, you know, the Lord has been really good. Um, you know, this whole this whole transition hasn't been easy. Um, I'm I'm. I'm sure in different ways it, it hasn't been easy for the church. Um, I remember, you know, kind of going back months and months. Um, there was a conversation I actually had with someone here um, that actually precipitated my leaving. And they don't know this. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was actually, um, I, I'll never say who it was, um, but one of the things that this person said to me um, was, Angel, God is, God is obviously doing something new inside of you. 
and you you need to feel the freedom to pursue that. Um, and it was almost like when those words came out of that person's mouth, something inside of me just kind of broke open. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of the process of deciding that it was time to actually leave Missio Day, despite how hard that was for me, uh, super challenging. Um, this is the only church I've really ever known and loved. Um, so it's been um, super, Super weird for Amy and I and our family, really, to kind of feel like we're disconnected um, in trying to figure out what that means for us uh, moving forward. Nonetheless, um, God has been so good. I actually graduated um, on May 1st uh, from the program that I've been in, um, in clinical mental health. That's <laughs> so glad that's finished. Um, the licensure process has gone really well. I've passed both the both national exams, uh, licensure exams, which has been exciting. I woke up Friday morning to an email from the state saying I was licensed. Um, that has been like the big thing kind of hanging over my head for the past couple of years. So to finally kind of get to that point, um, you know, it was Friday was a good day. Um, my boss at the, my, you know, my, my day job um, has, has been, I, I can't really explain um, the grace that God has shown me with this job. Like, honestly, um, he is completely open to the fact that I am a person of faith, has in no way, shape, or form tried to re repress that or change that or anything. He, if anything, he celebrates it. Um, so when I started on, I had one role, and then he promoted me back in November to a different role, um, kind of managing Section 28, which is a, a program for kids with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, so I was basically um, doing assessments with families, hiring behavioral health professionals, training them, putting them into homes, and then kind of managing the relationship. Uh, which is a lot of just like putting out fires, you know, it's just a lot of relational stuff you kind of have to sort through. Um, and so that's got actually gone really well. And this past week he offered me a promotion again, um, kind of managing the agency alongside of him, um, basically managing clinicians um, and BHPs um, in the section that he's been managing. So um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with this. Uh, I don't, the conversations that Amy and I have been having is I don't want to necessarily get lost in this. Um, but I, I need to feed my family. Uh, I want to build a practice, and I also have a long-term vision for why I got into this. Um, and so it's almost like God, is, God has just been opening doors that were unexpected and blessing us in ways that were unexpected. Um, so I'm incredibly thankful for what he's been doing, uh, grateful. Uh, it's still a little scary because the, it's, it's just not super clear, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, but the more I talk to people about the vision that God's kind of planted in my heart for, um, for the church and for ways that a trauma-informed view of life and spirituality could impact the church and pastors is super exciting to a lot of people. Um, so I'm kind of... Um, anticipating that God will continue to kind of open the right doors and, you know, make it all work. So you guys can be praying for me um, as I kind of step into that future. Um, I'm really grateful, actually, for the chance to be back here. Um, 
chat with you guys. I've missed you guys a lot. So um, you probably don't remember this, but I was actually, um, when COVID hit, I was wrapping up a sermon series um, through the Gospel of John. Uh, I actually had one sermon left in that series, um, and I actually thought about preaching that today, but uh, I wanted to actually save that for a different time. Um, I don't know if you remember the Thresholds of Grace series that we were doing. Um, but what I wanted to do today was talk about um, something that's becoming very, just super close to my heart. Um, so if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Like Joey said, I haven't done this in over a year, so you know, we're, we're going to read the text so that you guys can pray for me um, that I can actually get through this. Well, well I'm, I'm sure it's like kind of like riding a bike. I'm sure it's going to just come, come right back. So uh, Exodus chapter 1, um, this is the story basically of how God uh, began the process of fulfilling his promise to Abraham of building a new nation basically through, through him. So basically we're going to read, it's a long passage. But we're just going to read through Exodus chapter 1, we'll pray, and then we'll kind of hop into this. Um, The theme this morning, as you you, you may be able to kind of track with this, maybe, I don't know, but as you kind of hear the text, right, and think about it, is how do you build, like, spiritual resilience? Like, resilience is in essence, like, if you have an object, like, if you think of a rubber band, actually, a rubber band is in its state form, and then you can stretch it to a new state, and basically the idea of resilience is something that has the ability to kind of snap back um, and recover from, like, being stretched or being pulled out of form, in essence. Um, and so for us in the counseling world, like, resilience is huge. Like, how do you help people develop resilience um, is kind of like the heart and soul of what mental, emotional, and spiritual health is all about. And so what I wanted to do today was kind of talk through spiritual resilience, Like, what does it look like for us as people of faith to develop spiritual resilience? Um, And I think Exodus chapter 1 kind of helps us develop a framework for how we do that. So that's why we're in Exodus chapter 1. If you want to kind of think about that as we read through the text this morning, it may kind of give you some uh, thoughts or head starts in terms of where we're going. So Exodus chapter 1, it reads this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Each of his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, I think this is so incredibly fascinating. Look at this. 
the more they were oppressed, verse 12, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They were just in fear of the Israelites. Verse 13, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the, Egypt, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You see, the, like they say, they're saying this twice. Like this is like super important. Um, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew, I just imagine how busy these women must be. I don't know, there's only two listed. I don't know if there's more, but I'd like to get Josie's perspective on being the midwife for an entire country. Anyway, uh, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, Shapur uh, and Pua, when you're helping the, the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill it. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pua, Hebrew women, I, 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 this is kind of funny. I think this is actually meant to be funny, so you should smile when this is read. Uh, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and, to the, pe- and the people increased, there's this theme again, and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, look at this, it's beautiful. He gave them families of their own. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this story. Thank you mainly for the big story. The story that we keep seeing through all of these smaller stories, that there is a God who is committed to rescuing his people. There is a God who is committed to delivering. There's a God who's committed to saving. And it's frustrating for us because sometimes we don't understand how you act. We don't understand why you act. We don't understand the timing of when you act. But at the end of the day, you are forcing us into situations where we must have faith in the overarching reality that you are a God who saves. Help us uh, as we seek to figure out just what it means to possess spiritual resilience. Help us to be the kind of people that kind of snap back into shape, into the shape of faith. Thank you for this text. Uh, Help me as I get back on the horse Uh, Help me to clearly communicate the message that you put on my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe I have a water bottle over there. If someone wanted to grab it for me, that would be excellent. Um, Thank you. So basically the way this sermon is going to get broken down, and I was told I have 25 minutes. 
I've never preached a 25-minute sermon. You, you guys all know that. So I'm going to do my very best. So uh, this sermon is getting broken into three parts. Uh, the first part is we're just going to kind of overview the story. What is, that, what is actually happening in the text context-wise? Um, and then we'll move to theology. And I just have one big point. Like, there is one point to this story. I, I, from my perspective, you have your own perspective. Please do. Uh, so we'll kind of walk through the theology of the text. So the story of the text the theology of the text, and I have three points of application that are meant to help you figure out how do you develop spiritual resilience. Like, how, how do you live um, in such a way that your faith kind of allows you to snap back into form uh, so you don't lose touch with yourself, with God, and the people around you? So, as I think about this text, um, it's... This is a challenging text. So for some of you who've like been Christians for a really long time, you read this story and it's like, oh yeah, I've read this story. I remember when I was in like third grade and I saw this story on a flannel graph. You know what I mean? Like you could probably tell this story in your sleep. You probably know more about, you know, the Bible and all of these random stories that you've learned forever and ever that sometimes like the actual details of the text, you, you kind of miss the details of the text. Um, so what I want to do is just take a minute, retell the story of chapter one, try and put it in context, and then we'll move to theology, right? So the book of Exodus, right? Exodus is about, it's the big story about the way that God is going to deliver his people from Egypt, right? We know that this is the big story. When we get into the actual story in chapter one, chapter one is all about creating context, The story doesn't actually start until chapter 2. Chapter 1 is basically the way in which Moses, we believe was the author, paints a picture of what's going on in the nation and with the Hebrew people uh, as God begins this process of, like, actually delivering them. And so here's some of the things that I think are really important highlights through chapter 1 that kind of develop a framework for the story. Uh, First is it gives this long list of names— Um, and it says all of these people uh, basically went to Egypt, and then it says that there was one person who was already there, right? And that was Joseph. And it says um, there were 70 people in total. Numbers are very fascinating in Scripture because numbers aren't always literal. I know sometimes we want to make them literal, but they're not always literal. We know this. Um, And so I think it's interesting that he uses the word 70. Personally, I think it creates a little bit of a context for the passage. Um, Two numbers come together here. One is 7, the other is 10. If you do some research on the way these numbers are used in Scripture, you'll come to the conclusion that the number 7 is used of perfection. Uh, It's why we believe there were seven days in creation. At the end of creation, the seventh day, God, God created a perfect world, right? A perfect universe, if you will. Um, the number 10 basically means completion. So um, it, you, you kind of mix the concepts of quantity and quality. Uh, so if 7 is like perfection, and we're talking about the quality of something, 10 represents completion or the extent at which that thing has gone to become perfect, if you will. And so there's a little bit of foreshadowing with this number that I think personally is super important to the story. Because what ends up happening in this story, these 70 people, right, perfection and completion, make their way into Egypt. 
And there's no way in which, from a literal perspective, the nation of Israel is perfect or complete in any way. But as you read chapter 1, what do you end up seeing? Anything stick out to you guys in chapter 1 that you find repetitious or interesting? Bueller? Increase. Yes, we see, we see the word multiply. We see the word increase. Um, and we also see that there's this like three-step plan to basically cause the nation to not increase to not multiply, right? And so the leadership of Egypt is getting like a little bit nervous because the the children of Israel are growing and they're spreading. And this king that's in charge has absolutely no personal connection to Joseph or the people of Israel that were there. He, He just, there's no relational connection. He's seeing them as a threat. He's getting a little concerned because if he's attacked by another country and these people who are already in the country partner up with another, you know, nation state, it's just not gonna go good for the nation of Egypt. So he's a little concerned. And so he comes up with basically with a three-step plan. And this is, this is where it gets really fascinating because the plan, uh, step one of the plan is, well, it, 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 it's, it, step one of the plan is to make life super challenging, right? That's, this is step one of the plan. We're a little afraid of these people. I don't know exactly how all of this worked, but he, the, the king, the leadership appoints people who, I'm not exactly sure if the nation of Israel already at this point, like right before they're delivered, because we know they were there for 400 years. And so chapter one is like a huge, it's a 400 year swath. Like they enter the land, they're there. There's Joseph in the 70. And now we're talking about them being delivered. And I'm not sure that one Pharaoh lived 400 years. So you see how what's happening in this story. It's not all quite literal. There's there, the word, we're painting with big brushes. And so basically, step number one is to make conditions super hard for them. Like, just make it, like, is, it says in the text twice, like, these taskmasters, they were ruthless. They, they made them do all kinds of strenuous labor. They were trying to wreck these people. I mean, they were just trying to squash them with their thumb. But... But then what happens? It's like the very opposite thing happens. Like human thinking, right? Fear-based thinking says if I use my power to exert that over someone else, I can gain power over that person and increase my stake, whatever it is. It's like a zero-sum game, right? There's only so many, a zero-sum game means there's only so many things to go around and you win by having all the things, And then God says, okay, the way that my world, my creation works is not a zero-sum game. And so instead of taking strength away, instead of taking resource away, instead of taking resilience away from the people of God, he increases all these things. They keep having babies. Not only do they keep having babies, but now they're spreading all over Egypt and they're becoming even more of a threat, right? And so now you're losing, the Pharaoh's like losing power. He's got no power whatsoever. So what does he do? Step number two. Let's go to the people who are delivering the babies and let's just get right at it, right? So we tried to make their lives miserable 
in an effort to keep them from mating and spreading, right? Because they wouldn't have time, they wouldn't have the energy, right? And so he says, let's go, let's just go right at it. We're just going to talk to the midwives. As those babies come out, if it's a boy, right, kill it. And so these two women who are the unsung heroes of this text, names you've probably never heard. Maybe you've heard, but you didn't commit them to memory. Who the heck is Shipra and Pua? These are two women that save the nation. These are heroes. These women are heroes. Because it says in the text that they chose in faith instead of fear to allow these babies to be born. Huge. Right? There's like the, from their perspective, there's this like living God out there and they're seeing through faith eyes what God is doing in the nation. And they make a choice based on faith instead of fear to believe. And I think this is kind of central to my whole point this morning, which we'll get to in a second from a theological perspective. That when God is silent, God is not necessarily absent. This has possibly been the most challenging spiritual truth for me to learn on a personal level. Because imagine, imagine you being in the situation where you have, you're living in, a, in another country and the leaders of that country make you a slave, they make your life miserable and they're doing it on purpose Right, And you know, because every time you get together with your family and you retell the stories that God made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he seemed to be so incredibly powerful in fulfilling his promises, and all of a sudden, this God that was so profound, that was so alive, this God that was so real is all of a sudden just silent and hundreds of years go by and nothing. I mean, nothing. And so imagine that dinner table with three, four generations telling stories that are like hundreds of years old. And imagine you being the kid at the table and asking mom and dad, do you actually believe this stuff? Like, this is old news. Like, we need to defend ourselves. We need to take up arms. Like, I don't know where God is. I don't even know, I don't even know this God's name. I don't even know this God's name. He has no name to them. You realize this. Is it worth believing these stories? And then these two women, these two women come out of nowhere. And they choose to defy the king of Egypt and to allow these baby boys to be born. 
And then in turn of phrase, this is quite possibly my favorite part of this entire text, the king calls them back in and says, hey, what the heck are you doing? There are boys everywhere. And these two women have the gall to look the king of Egypt in the eye and say to the king of Egypt, you, 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 you kind of have to like think about what's being said. He says these women are vigorous. They're full of life. They're so freaking full of life. The kind of life that you tried to rob from them. But the very work that you've made them do for years and years has made them so strong. These are CrossFit women. (laughs) Basically what, what they're saying. These women are ripped. These women are pumped. And there's nothing you can do to press them down. And they are so amazing. They're so amazing at being human. They're popping babies out left and right before we can even get there. Is this not hilarious? At the the gumption of these women to kind of put it right back in the king's face. Yeah, this is on you, buddy. You did this. We know from the story, right, that they're, they're bending the truth a bit, right? In essence, babies are being born and they're lying about it because they're choosing faith instead of fear. And so plan number one, right, was let's just make their lives horrible, right? Out of fear, let's just make their lives horrible. Plan number two was let's get the the midwives involved and we can eliminate them that way. And then that didn't work. Plan number three. And this is quite, quite frankly, awful. I don't, know if, I don't know if you really understand what comes in the last verse of chapter 1. But in essence, a decree goes out to the entire nation. It's like, forget the midwives. If you see a Hebrew family and they have a baby boy, it is your state-manded obligation to grab that child out of its mother's arms and drown it in the Nile River. Think about that. Think about that image. Think about you being at the beach this weekend and seeing someone go to a mother, rip that baby out of its arms and drown it in the ocean. This is happening all over the place. This is a a holocaust. This This is the most horrible reality that could ever come true for these people. Now think about it, if you were there, right? And you believed all this stuff about God that's centuries old. You've been beaten, you've been oppressed, and now they're stealing your babies and they're drowning them in the river, right? This is... (laughs) I have questions. <laughs> I have questions about this that I, I cannot answer. I have questions about who this God is that to this day I cannot answer. 
I have to be completely honest. But as we move on to the theological piece, there does seem to be a truth that is rooted in this text that was meant for all of the readers of this book to like learn deep in their soul, right? This isn't my truth. I don't believe this is my truth. I believe this is God's truth that he's weaving in this story. This is what happens to the Israelites from a theological perspective, and then we'll kind of talk about it from a personal perspective. <clears throat> That's funny. Um, the Israelites, this is what happens. God plunders the enemy's plan, right? God plunders the enemy's plan by granting multiplication and increase of Israel, which in turn stokes the fear of the Egyptians, even more so than they would, even, even more so that they would more severely discomfort God's people. You see, do you, do, you, do you see the movement of that phrase? God plunders the enemies planned by granting multiplication and increase of Israel, which in turn stokes the fear of the Egyptians even more so that they more severely discomfort God's people. It was within this growing sense of discomfort it was within this growing sense of discomfort that God causes them to more deeply desire deliverance. The question becomes, how does God get this nation out of Egypt when Egypt is in the nation? How does God get these people to leave this nation when that nation has taken up residence in the very hearts of the people. So he grows discomfort. He grows discomfort with the people so that they make the choice to leave on their own. I forgot about this. <laughs> I forgot about this. So, maybe they'll let me come back and finish this sometime. I don't know, but I think I'm done. Um, let me just make one, I, what I want to do is bring this theology home to you, and then we'll leave the practical stuff maybe for another time. Um, kids, kids, it's so great to see your smiling faces, and I'm going to do my best to be super fast. So here it is. I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right. So I'm going to read this and then I'll just explain it for just a second and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll be done. It's, it's, it goes this way. Do, do not equate, it, this is my heart, do not equate God's silence for his absence. Do not equate God's silence for his absence. It is often in and through the silence and ensuing experience of suffering. That God creates the context not only within our circumstances where he plunders the enemy's greatest laid plans, but also a context within our own hearts whereby he plunders our pain. He plunders our suffering. 
by stimulating holy discontent and thus a deepening desire for deliverance. It is within this state of heart that we experience God and the gospel in the most profound ways. As I started down this whole thing of counseling, one of the, th- one of the things that I end up doing a lot is working with BHPs and parents on developmental issues, helping parents understand the developmental stage of their child and how the child's diagnosis interrupts or interferes with that developmental stage. One of the things that I have come to believe based on the work of a pastor and a psychologist who got together to write a book is that spirituality also has stages of development. Spirituality also has stages of development. The part of that developmental sequence that I have become most passionate about is the second half. Because the first half is all marked by joy. It's marked by excitement with worship. It's marked by a ruthless commitment to community and a ruthless commitment to discipleship. And there is so much passion and joy around the spiritual experience in the first half. But the part that I am most interested in at this stage of life is the second half. Based on the research, the second half of spiritual development takes place after people experience intense pain, intense suffering that they have no framework for intellectually or theologically to make sense of. It's when everything breaks. You may lose a a parent. You may lose a child. You may lose a job. You may do everything right. You may do everything right. And your life may just come apart. And it, it's going to. This is the harsh reality of what it means to be a human on planet Earth. We all suffer. And what we know about suffering from a psychological perspective is that it doesn't matter which kind of suffering you suffer. Pain fills up the internal cavity like a gas. It permeates everything. So you could lose a parent or you could lose a job, but quite frankly, the psychological experience of pain, person to person, experience to experience, pain is pain. It it wrecks you. It doesn't matter what it is. It's so hard. And so the question then becomes, how do we develop resilience? How do we snap back into shape after being stretched to our limits of belief? Questioning, is there a God really out there? Because I don't really hear him. I don't really see him. He's been so incredibly distant. And I've done everything right. I think what this story tells us, I think what it's meant to tell the nation of Egypt is that God is creating a context in our own circumstances in and through the pain. And he's creating a context in our own hearts to make us yearn for deeper levels of deliverance, for deeper levels of the rescuer to show up in our lives. The very next words 
the very next words in Act, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 2 is about the birth of a deliverer. Someone that would show up on the scene to save his people. Moses was identified as the greatest prophet to ever live. But there's one greater. Jesus Christ. In and through pain and suffering, just like the Hebrews, he enters the pain and suffering and he takes your place in the pain and suffering. He enters your personal space. He enters your world. You may think, well, this whole God and gospel thing is so big and sometimes I get it, but I don't really get it. Like, yeah, there's a God that loves me. But the thing that I want to draw your attention to in this story is this. In this story, there are two women. There are two women that God uses to accomplish his ultimate purposes for the nation. But there are two women named Fair and Splendid. That's what their names mean, Fair and Splendid. And God shows up in their life. And he gives them a family. What I want you to hear this morning is that there is a deliverer and he is identified with you by entering into the human story, entering into the pain of humanity. And sometimes that's big and that's like, yeah, okay, there's a God and he loves me. But what I want you to see in this story that was only meant to paint the big context of what's happening, that there's a God who sees into your heart, into your life. He knows your pain. He knows your deepest longing. He knows what you want more than anything. And what we read in this story is that he shows up in a unique way and he gives it to two women who choose fear or faith, excuse me, over fear. So be encouraged that you may be in the midst of the hardest pain you've ever known. And yes, there may be this God out there somewhere. But let me tell you that based on this story, that God that's out there somewhere wants to show up in your own life. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I want to get up out of bed every day believing that he's going to. I hope that you can do the same thing. Father, thank you so much uh, for your kindness. Thank you so much for having a passion to develop resilience in us, to cause us to believe in the midst of unbelief, to cause us to respond in faith in the midst of stymieing fear. Um, I pray that you would help us in the hardest places of our lives where we don't seem to see you or experience you, to believe that even in those places you are at work and you will plunder the pain in the most challenging places to bring redemption 
and your ultimate purposes to fruition in, in our lives. Give us that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Angel. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, great having you. So at Monsieur Day Church, we do communion uh, every week. And I'll just quickly, while they, while they get these ready, they'll, they'll pass them out. But uh, I just want to quickly tie in here. Um, what angels said, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stories like this throughout Scripture where things get very hard on people and things are very challenging. And uh, one theme that I remember through community groups and studies and so forth for the last couple of years is the idea of uh, remembering and reminding. Like, that's our job, right? It's our job to remember and to remind each other of the goodness of God and where we are in the story of God um, and what our, what our role is um, in the story of God, meaning as a human, not as, a, not as like a widget, but as an actual human. Um, and, you know, in every one of these stories, like the one Angel talked about today, there's always people who say, remember God, remember what he did for us, remember what he's doing for us. Um, and then we have Jesus who died you know, and we have communion, and he said, do this in remembrance of me, and so uh, today we're going to do the same thing we do every week, and we're going to do this in remembrance of him, Um, so whether, regardless of, like, where you're at today or what you are, this is a, this is a, this is a commitment to exactly what Angel said, getting out of bed and remembering that, that Jesus is on the throne, uh, and what he did for us, and through the whole story of God, what God has done for us. And so when they get done passing these out, we'll take, uh, we'll take the elements together. All right, so if you haven't been here, I guess you, like, peel the top, and there's a little wafer in it, and then there's, uh, and then there's some grape juice underneath it. Um, and so, like I just said, uh, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is his body and his blood broken for you. Take eat. Let me pray while you finish up. Father, thank you for these stories. Father, thank you for reminding us of all the places you've taken your people through. God, I pray you would give us strength. You would give us peace. God, and most of all, you would use us in the lives of each other and the people that you put in our path every day in this journey we call life. God, help us to show your love and help us to remind each other, God, that you are pursuing us and that you want us to pursue you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.